Take your Bibles and go to James chapter 1. I want to build off of the baptism service as we start this part of the service by uh, highlighting one of those realities I think that we all have to work with. And that is, uh, I guess part of where I want to start with that is why we do baptism in the first place. And the short answer to that is because we believe that that's one of the things that Jesus said, do this. It is an ordinance. We consider that to be an ordinance at least. And that is that Jesus said, do this. This is one of those continuing things you do uh, as an indicator, key word here, or key statement here, as an indicator of our faith in Christ. It pictures our Death to our old sinful self, being buried in baptism, pictures our old self being buried. And then coming up out of the water, it pictures that new life that we have because of Jesus Christ. Now, that's one of the reasons as Baptists we do the under the water thing or dunking it or whatever you want to call it is because of the symbolism that that holds for us. Plus, we believe that's a biblical approach. Uh, And so that's the picture that you get there. Um, So let me build off of that this way. To come up here and do that is a big thing. Many of you in this building this morning have done that. To get up in front of other people that you don't know and visibly take your stand with Jesus Christ uh, is not necessarily easy. And I get that. A lot of people really, you know, it's the be in front of people that's the problem. Um. But let me throw this at you. Isn't it easier to do that in a church where people are already of that mindset than it is to walk out into the public and be identified as a follower of Christ? Do you find in your day-to-day life that the circles of your life, the people that are in those circles, are not necessarily friendly to the Christian cause? Now, some of that depends on your circles, and I get that. And a lot of what I'm talking about and how you respond to the, the threat or the challenge or just the uncomfortable nature of living your faith out in the public arena uh, differs from person to person based on your personality. I get that. But there's got to be some kind of way for us, I think, to, to begin to say, okay, here's what you take with you out into the world that is dangerous and that is not necessarily going to support you in those positions that you take? And how do you make that real in life? It's one thing to do it in church where we're all together. It's another thing to step out there where real people are and they may or may not support what you do. It's a challenge. And I think that we don't do... Our members, much uh, members being those who just frequent us at this point is the way I'm talking about, just you know, part of the life of our church. I don't think we do favors to just act like uh, I'll say it and you go do it is easy thing to do. And I think James gets that. And we're in James chapter 1. Actually, we're almost into James chapter 2. After two months, you thought we were never going to get out of chapter 1, but we're almost there now. But as we come to this, here's what James is saying for us. Your faith is that stuff that you say you believe has to work. As a matter of fact, as we get to today's text, I think what James essentially says is, so work it. It does work, so work it. 
You know what is required, so do it. Now, let me come back, and we'll take about 40 minutes to say that again. No, not 40 minutes today. Look at James chapter 1. We're going to start reading verse 19, and I don't normally read this much Scripture, but I'm going to try to cover this whole section today in just a little bit of time. So let's get what he says first. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. James says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I want us to begin here today by starting with a valid foundation. And what I mean by that is I want us to recognize that there is a difference between biblical literacy and biblical wisdom in the way you live your life. Because I think the reason this is important is because sometimes we in church try to sell biblical literacy without pushing biblical wisdom. Now, that's a big enough statement that you ought to want me to justify that, so let me try to do that. Literacy in any given area, and I could give you dictionary definitions, but you know me, I like to make up my own definitions for stuff, so let me just do it this way. Literacy in any given field is the ability to know the terminology and the functioning of that area, okay? Uh, for instance, our oldest son, and most of you know some of the struggles of his life over the past year, um, but one of the things that he took up as a way to kind of get some handles on his world on a day-to-day basis is he started cooking. Now, I had done my, dad, my duty as a dad, and I taught him how to grill properly. So I knew that he could go outside and cook stuff on a grill or on a campfire, that kind of thing, but when it came to other parts of cooking... Uh, I didn't teach him so well. For instance, when I cook vegetables, uh, it, it, the, the whole process is open the can, put it in the microwave. Not the can, but the green beans and that kind of stuff in the microwave. See, I learned that much, and I taught him that much. But he started cooking, and now he cooks these dishes that are elaborate. And he doesn't buy canned stuff because he's snooty like that. Now, what I find interesting is he doesn't mind doing that at home when he's by himself, but he won't do that when he comes to my house. I still got to do the cooking through the microwave process. Now, here's what I learned from Brandon. He started watching these TV cooking shows, and he started picking up on the terminology. And so when he talks to me about some of the stuff that he's cooking, he uses terminology I don't get. Okay? He's literate in the culinary arts, right? All right, so 
You, whatever your field of expertise happens to be, whether you're in management or finance or in sales or you're an engineer, whatever it is that you do, you develop to be good at your field. You have to develop a literacy uh, to know the language and the tools of how that works. And I want to take that and I want to pull it into a church context, right? Because we in church spend a lot of I would say money and effort to raise the level of biblical literacy in our churches. Let's see if we're doing any good with that. Let's test your biblical literacy. You ready? Okay, this is audience participation time. It's totally okay to answer back. Just answer the question, okay? Um, If you look at Scripture as a whole, and we divide it into two major pieces, what are the names of those two major pieces? Old Testament, New Testament. Very good. So far, you're doing well. Uh, Name three of the 12 disciples, and you get extra credit if you get the obscure ones. Barbara's doing real well here. I don't know about the rest of you, okay? <laughs> this is kind of like those school deals, you know, where you get one person in class who answers all the questions or knows the answers and you see just, well, I agree with what she said. All right? So there's, how many disciples are there? Okay, you get another point. See, see how easy this biblical literacy thing is? Uh, I think that we do a pretty good job, uh, and I'm talking not just our church, but church in general these days, at promoting biblical literacy. It would be good for us to remember that sometimes people come in to be part of us who don't have the background that you have. And so it's really important that we help them and help all of us to grow in our awareness of the basic stuff of Scripture. Matter of fact, one of the things that we do here intentionally with our children Uh, and preschoolers and children, is we emphasize strongly a lot of just basic Bible knowledge stuff. Abraham and Moses and Noah. And, you know, we we take a kid and we want to be able to give them the overall scheme of Scripture, how where Abraham fits into this bigger picture and where Jesus fits into this bigger picture. Uh, And so we spend a lot of time. Matter of fact, part of our design for children's level uh, education in the church is strictly to get across Bible knowledge. Now, what we also need to get is when a kid moves from, now many of you are teachers and you know educational psychology and developmental psychology and all that kind of stuff. So we know that kids are very concrete in their thinking. And so at certain levels, they get the stories, but they can't be abstract with those stories. It's difficult for them to go to this concrete thing to some abstract concept over here. But by the time our kids get to be teenagers, and especially, let's say, if they're fortunate enough to graduate from high school, they've learned enough and they have developed enough in their brain to be able to take abstract concepts and pull them out of those stories. So our whole scheme, if you will, of educational growth and biblical literacy is to take kids from the time they come into our process all the way through to help them get the big picture. Okay? You with me on that? All right, so here's the problem. I went through all of that to highlight the problem for us. 
Many times we think we've done our duty when we communicate biblical knowledge. But if we stop with the biblical knowledge part of it, we never get to the wisdom part of it, which, now I'll give you my definition of that, the biblical wisdom part of it is to be able to take the knowledge and translate it into how it affects my life every day. And so many times in so many churches, the whole goal of the church is just seems like it's just to get, wisdom, to get knowledge out there. If you happen to be a Sunday school teacher at any level, hear that. It's important that we help people take the knowledge and plug it into their lives so that it affects how they live every day. All right? That's kind of the beginning part of what I want to get to this morning. But let me come back to the whole idea of this getting the knowledge and the literacy part right and how it fits our life. Let's put it out of the church and into a regular everyday living kind of a application here. Do you, how many of you know, now I don't want I like to quote it or anything like that. I'll, I'll make it easier. I had to kind of do this in the first service. I'll make it easier. How many of you have heard of the law of gravity? Okay, six people out of 400. That's, that's not good. Uh, so I'm guessing some of you are just too shy to vote. Um, the law of gravity essentially says what? <laughs> All right. If, I'm going to change it. Okay, if it's up, it's going to come down unless something keeps it from that, right? Okay, fair enough. That's my scientific expertise. So now the question is, do you, okay, that's the literacy part. Do you know it? Let's go to the wisdom part of it. Do you believe that the law of gravity is an actual reality? Okay. You want me to test that in you? How about, no, great answer, okay? Now, that tells me you got the wisdom part of this down, all right? But if I really, if I, if I could do this, I would take about five of you up to the pinnacle of the chapel, all right? That's the highest building we have around here, I think. And if I could get you up at the pinnacle of the chapel on this western side of it and say to you, take one step off, would you do that? No. If you, if, you're in, if you say yes, then we need to counsel with you after this is over, okay? <laughs> the reason you say no to that is because you believe the law of gravity, right? So in other words, what you believe needs to get down into how you live, okay? James is saying that here. James is putting it much more into the spiritual arena of life. That's why he's writing. James, the, the letter of James is full of wisdom sayings. And what we find throughout the whole process, and we've been now for seven weeks, or six of the seven that we've been in this already, we've seen James talking about your faith has to work in trials and troubles. All right, And he's been helping us figure out what that means and what that looks like. But now he's in this midst of a change in this first chapter going into the rest of the book. And he's laying these themes out and we'll pick some of them up later. But now he's talking about biblical wisdom for us and how it needs to impact the decisions that we make. In other words, your faith has to work, but he wants us to work it. 
So look specifically at how he does that. In verses 22 through 25, he said, now, now he's going to say in one sentence what it just took me 10 minutes to say because he's smarter than I am. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And that's the basic teaching, okay? But he gives us a negative example of that, and then he gives us a positive example of that. Before I read the, the negative example, let me ask you this. Have you seen, I'm not so sure that I want you to go look at it, but have you seen the websites called the people of Walmart? Okay, um, I'm not real big on big government, okay? Um, but if big government is going to get into our lives at any level, I think the first thing they should do is buy everybody a mirror so that they can look at themselves before they get out in public. Or so says James, in a sense. Verses 23 and 24 give us the negative example of be a doer and not just a hearer. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and immediately forgets what he was like. In other words, let's put it in our modern vernacular. James says the person who hears but doesn't do is the person that he goes one in, in one ear and out the other. It doesn't stick around and attach itself into the synaptic gaps of your nervous system. It just moves right on. In other words, truth makes no real difference for them. Verse 25 gives us the positive side, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, we'll come back and talk about that in time, but it goes on to say, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all of his doing. In other words, James is saying to this, he says essentially to this, what you hear, the biblical literacy that you have, work it. Do it. But that's a problem for many Christians. I'm not going to limit it to many Christians on that side of the pulpit, that's a problem for 100% of the Christians on this side of the pulpit right now. We struggle with taking what we know and putting it to work. I did this in another church. I'm not going to do it now. Okay? Some of you are going to want to run me out of town on a rail when you hear me say this, I'm sure. Okay? Um, I heard about it from somewhere else, and I didn't have enough wisdom not to do it, so I did it. Um, and that is, I went into the children's area of a church that I served previously, and I was preaching a sermon along the lines of this one today. And so I went in, and just to illustrate how real this issue is, this disconnect between what we know and what we do, uh, I went in and found one of those Bibles in the children's area that children had been using for a long time. You know the Bibles I'm talking about, they're torn, the pages are torn, the back was torn off of it. Uh, it was all warped in the bottom where some kid had spilled some kind of juice or milk or something on it. It was, it was a Bible who had done its time. And so I took it in, and I just kind of started grabbing texts, most of them out of the New Testament. Uh, and I would, as for instance, you know, this, Jesus says this about uh, how to handle disputes with your brother and you know we don't do that and uh so i just ripped it out of the bible and watered up and threw it off to the side well the first time i did that the collective 
of all of the Bible worshipers out there was tangible. And so I went to another one and I said, well, you know, we're not supposed to gossip. And Paul says this. And so I said, we don't believe that. So I ripped it out, tore it up and threw it away. And so for about five minutes, I just went through different texts that say, this is part of how you live the Christian life. We don't believe that because we don't do that. So let's don't have that ripped it up toward. Now I'm going to just pause for a second. Let some of you get really frustrated with the fact that I did that. Because the way I finished it there is the same way I want to finish it here. My comment to that people was, some of you are more upset that I tore a page out of a book than you are that we don't do what Scripture says. So James is getting a little personal here. Be doers of the word and not just hearers. In my terms for the day, move beyond biblical literacy to biblical wisdom, which is to take truth and put it to work in your life. So James, and I'll move towards the end here, James now lays out for us several examples of what that looks like. Because he's probably aware of people like me coming to this and not always being able to connect the dots. And so here's what working faith looks like. He gives us these examples. Here's the first one. That is that anger must be held in check. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of just how bad I have been at this Christian living thing through the years. Not because I'm proud of that, but because I... It's easier for me to talk about my failures than to make you think I'm picking on yours. This whole anger thing, by the way, we find this in 19 and 20. I'll go and read them again. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. That was last week we talked about that. Slow to speak, uh, slow to anger. And then he adds, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Um, here's essentially the truth that he says. Um, when we don't operate in biblical wisdom when it comes to anger, then we block God's activity. That's a powerful statement. To think that we might have the ability to get in the way of what God's doing is almost a little bit prideful, except that it's really sinful. So here's how that played out in my life. I told you many times I've told you that I'm a recovering angerholic. Which is another way of saying that uh, through the early part of my life, especially, I had a real serious problem with anger. Uh, And so this event that I'm going to tell you about was one of the primary turning points where God really impacted on me just how serious my issue was. Some of you don't know, but there used to be days when homes had telephones in them. Uh, It wasn't something you carried with you all the time. It was just wired to the wall in your house. And if you wanted to get a phone call, you had to be at home to get it. And um, even before we had caller ID and that kind of stuff, uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, that's where people would call you and you had no clue who it was until you picked up the phone. (laughs) It was always an adventure about who might be calling. And and sometimes that got in my way because... uh, we started getting, when, when our kid, I think that maybe Brandon was a teenager by this time, I don't really remember exactly, but 
Uh, we started getting phone calls in the middle of the night, like 1 o'clock in the morning, middle of the night. Now, you should know that for me, uh, if I get to sleep and then get awake somewhere in the middle of the night, I just, I'm just up. I, I, especially in those days, I couldn't go back to sleep. And so I started getting this phone call about 1 o'clock in the morning, just after I'd been good and asleep. Uh, and as soon as I would answer the phone, they would hang up. Oh, not good. The first night, that was bad. But when they did it the second night, now I started getting mad. And then the third night, every time, same deal. They called about 1 o'clock, 1.30 in the morning. I would answer the phone. As soon as I said hello, they would hang it up without saying anything. And then I'm up for the rest of the night. So this went on for the better part of a week. And so now I'm starting to figure out, I'm processing the ang- See, I got that slow burn anger. You, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you just get mad and you blow up and it's all good. I'm the guy that chews on it and, you know, as my dad used to say, I'll set your house on fire and I'll shoot you when you come running out of it. That, see, that takes a while to think about that, how to do that, see? That's, that's how I was trained. So, so every night for the better part of a week, I'm dealing with this and I get mad. Oh, I'm mad. And so as soon as the phone rings, so I, just, I decided what I was going to do. See, they used to have this deal. I don't know if they still have it or not. I, I never used it after this. Because they used to have this deal when if somebody called like that, you, when they hang up, you could hit star and then two digits, and it would call back the number that just called you. And I thought, gotcha. So I got a whistle, and, and I was ready for their call because what I was going to do is they're going to call me and I'd hit that star two digits and as soon as they answered the phone, I was going to blow that whistle in the receiver as loud as I could blow it. I didn't think about what that would do to my wife, but, um, <laughs> but it wasn't about her. See, it was about me being mad. And so sure enough, they called. Uh, and when they did, they hung up and I hit star two digits and I gave up on the whistle idea, uh, and instead of the whistle, I just decided to attack them verbally. And so I hit star two digits, the person answered the phone. They answered the phone, and I just went off on them. One o'clock in the morning, went off. And then the guy answers, well, you know, I'm really sorry. I don't, I don't, I, my, maybe my daughter did that. I don't really know. I'm sorry. And then he hung up. And then while he's talking and apologizing to me, I'm mad, but I'm thinking, I don't recognize that voice. (laughs) And then it dawns on me that I hit the wrong two digits. I hit star two digits that called back the last number that I had called from my phone. (laughs) It's not a good night by this time. But here's the tragedy of it. The last phone call that I had made during the day was to a guy that I had befriended. His daughter was in our youth group. And I was befriending him because he was going through a divorce and his life was just falling in around him. And he didn't know Christ. And I had been trying to help him come to know Christ in a saving kind of way.
And before I could get away from that, this verse came to mind. For the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. I got up the next morning at about five. Actually, I didn't get up. I never went to sleep after that. And I went and waited in front of his house for him to go. I wasn't about to call him. Uh, <laughs> waited for him to leave to go to work so that I could apologize to him and try to somehow right the wrong that I had committed. James says, your faith has to work. And it's easy to hide behind well, I'm Irish, or well, I'm redheaded, or I just have a short fuse. It's easy to hide behind all of those excuses for our anger. But James says the righteous, I mean, the uh, wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. It's got to work. So work it. You don't have to get mad. It's a choice you make. All right, so here's the next one. Because I know that most of you don't have anger issues. Well, James knew that, not me. I'm not picking these. He's the one who did it here. And so uh, here's one that maybe if you, if you didn't get sucked in on the anger problem, let's try this one. Um, look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue. Wow. This goes back to verse 19 with the slow to speak part of it. How you talk has a direct correlation to the depth of your faith. Do you, I'll just make this one easy and I'm going to move on because I'm just about out of time. Do you ever find yourself saying something and then feeling the need to look around and make sure that certain people weren't there to hear you say it? See, here's the other part of me just so you know who you got. Um, my mother, God bless my mother. She's, um, <laughs> see, I knew as a kid, I, I, I need to back it up. When I was in junior high school, I made a decision that I didn't like being a preacher's kid anymore. And so I was not going to be a preacher's kid anymore. Now I didn't have any control over my, whether my dad was a preacher or not, but I had control over the way I was living my life, and I just decided I'm not going to be a preacher's kid anymore. And so one of the things I decided to do, all right, now I know that we have some people in our church who used to be in the Navy, uh, so I don't. This is has no re reflection on them at all. But I decided that I was going to cuss like a sailor. Now I'm not even sure what cuss like a sailor really means. Uh, I know what it looked like in my life in junior high school. And I, I, I knew enough to know that if I talked like that at home, either my, my dad was going to cut my tongue out of my mouth or I, my mom was going to wash my mouth out with soap, neither of which seemed like good options to me. So I got to where I just talked like that away from home. And when I got home, I talked a different way. So anybody in junior high thinking that way, let me just give you the full story here. So what happened was... Uh, in the middle of the night, I got up one day and my mother was mad. I mean, she was not like angry mad like I used to get. She, hers was righteous indignation, I'm sure she would say. And I finally figured out what the deal was. Somehow in the middle of the night, uh, I didn't realize it, but I found out that day that I talked in my sleep in those days. 
And the stuff that I was saying in my sleep, actually I was yelling it in my sleep so much that it woke up my parents and my mom made some kind of comment about the kind of language that I was using. Um, How you talk reveals how viable your faith is. You need to know that. And here's why I think that's important. When you get to the end of the day, we fight this tension about living our faith out in ways that we know make God proud of us. I hate to say it that way, but that's kind of how we think. And yet having to do that out on the front lines where real people might not think much of us for that. And so sometimes we just kind of give in to, well, we'll just look like them and be okay at church. James gives us another one here. I'm going to make this one quick. Your faith has to work not just in your anger and not just in your mouth, but it has to work in the way you do caregiving for people. Now, Teresa doesn't always like it when I say this, but I I think I need to say it today. She works for Child Protective Services for the state of Texas. She works specifically... Uh, And we have others in our church who do. But she works specifically in the adoptive family services and uh, foster home area. And one of the things that is a regular occurrence for her as she comes home from work is having to deal with the children that come through that office from time to time. You know, uh, some of the great Christian servants that I've known through the years have worked in that agency. Some of, them are the one, some of them are the ones who go to homes in the middle of the night because adults do unthinkable things to children. And so they have to intervene in that process and take the children to a safer environment. But you know, one of the things that happens is those kids have to go somewhere in the middle of the night. And so at the office where Teresa works, they have this room that they can take children to in the middle of the night, that kind of stuff. And uh, nobody, the, the state doesn't outfit those rooms. So a kid goes from a home that's horrible to a very antiseptic environment, an institutional-looking room with nothing there. Except that some churches recognize that, and so they step into that need and outfit it with toys and those kind of things to help at least make the kids have one moment there that's sort of normal. I tell you that because James comes now to say your faith has to work at the margins of society, out there on that cutting edge. And so he talks about widows and orphans. This is verse 27, the first part. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And James highlights those two areas where society in the first century had just pushed those people to the edge. And James says your faith has to work there. It has to work. It's not enough for us to come to church and feel comfortable and argue about the color of the carpet because hurting people need our faith to work. So I'm going to leave you with three questions. Here's the first one. 
does your faith work? And when I say your faith here, I'm talking about the place that you focused your faith. Because you may have focused your faith outside of Jesus Christ. You may have focused your faith on a retirement account that you're sure is going to be there. You may have placed your faith in a government that you're sure is going to take care of you. Where have you placed your faith? Does your faith work? That's the first question. The second one is, does your faith work? Even if you get it focused in the right place, which is in Jesus Christ, if you settle and, and just say, okay, I'm, I've, I've learned a lot about the Bible, I've done my duty, then your faith doesn't work. It just sits there. So does it work? And finally, are you working it? Is it out there on the front lines? You know a better way for me to ask that last question? If somebody in your circle of contacts outside of the church I'm talking If one of those people goes through a crisis like we've been talking about for the last seven weeks, would they think to come to you because they've watched you go through crises and God has taken you through? Does it work? Let's pray. Invitation is for you. What do you do with what you've heard? Where's God in this for you? If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I want to highly commend him to you. If you don't have Jesus in your life, he can't help you with the problems of your life. So that's the first invitation. If you don't know him, now's the time. Make that choice. If you know him already, but it's not working for you, now's a good day to make the turn. And so, Father, we ask you to take this time, use it for your glory. In Jesus' name.